So did, uh, did any of you ever, ever uh, plant corn in the carpet of your living room? And we, my brother and I, we did that all the time. Um, we had a, a whole, our mo- whole fleet of uh, tractors, various sizes, because you know you've got small jobs, you've got big jobs. So you need small tractors, you need big tractors. Uh, you need a skid steer, you know, you need, you need a combine, um, you need a manure spreader, and, and then you need a tool shed to put them all in. And my great-grandpa had built us a little three-sided uh, shed to park them in that, as kids, we could crawl inside of it. It was just, it was awesome. We had a, a great setup there in our house where we'd get the tractors out and you know, you had, we had to get the disc out, and we had to disc the field up, and, and if you did it right, you could get the carpet to lay just the right direction so that you could tell that you'd been there, and, um, and then, and, and you, you didn't want, you know, the other person, whoever's helping you, you didn't want them messing up your field by walking on it or crawling over it, so there was some strategy involved. And then, uh, you know, you'd have to get out the planter and, and all of that. And uh, so we would, you know, farm in our bedroom or living room or wherever. Wherever had, actually, wh- whatever room had the best carpet for getting those nice lines really was the secret. And, um, you know, what we were doing was imitating the things that we had seen. And, and in some ways, you know, this is what we do as, as children... Um, we we play at things, whether it's kitchen or house or farming or or war or whatever it is. We play at things, and we're doing two things when we play like that. We're one we're imitating what we've heard about or seen um, in the adult world, and two it's a it's one of God's ways of preparing us to actually do the thing that we're pretending to do and so when we're my brother and I we weren't doing the substance of farming we were imitating it we were copying it what we were doing was just a shadow of the real thing sometimes pretty convincing I will tell you but uh, but it was a shadow of the real thing and and then Later, should we choose to take that path, we would have the opportunity to step into the substance of the real thing and actually drive real tractors in real fields and turn real dirt and plant real corn and, um, and spread real manure. Um, well, that's uh, perhaps a, an imperfect way, but at least it gives us some kind of understanding uh, uh, as we go into Hebrews chapter 8, and there's a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Priesthood and the New Priesthood of Christ. The Old Promises and the New Promises. And, and so, because um, we're going to, as we get into here, now it's not that, Hebrews does not lay out for us that the Old Covenant was bad. Just as it was not wrong for my brother and I to be, unless mom said otherwise, it was not wrong for us to be tilling up the living room carpet. 
uh, it just was not sufficient to actually harvest real corn, right? Um, so the old covenant was not bad. It was not wrong. It just fell short. And so um, that's what we're going to look at here today in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Would you uh, just start by joining me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your goodness once again and are grateful for all the many ways that you have blessed us with family, with friends, with, uh, Lord, with the things that we need for, for life and, and even above and beyond that, Lord. But more than anything, Lord, what you have blessed us with is yourself. And Lord, there's, there's nothing to replace you. There's nothing to replace the kind of joy or the kind of peace that comes from you. And Lord, we, just, we invite you to fill us with that today and to teach us your word and to find our heart a fertile place for the seed of your word to be sown. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to start again in verse 1, and then we'll chip our way through it here. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We'll revisit that little phrase, the true tent, because that's going to come into play here in a couple more verses. Um, and, and it echoes, that first verse echoes something that we heard really at the beginning of Hebrews, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says that uh, uh, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we have um, at the beginning of chapter 8 this reminder that Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of, of the majesty in heaven. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So that was you know, the duties of the high priest as we roll back to the Old Testament and look up what, you know, what the duties were. It, it, it did consist uh, uh, mostly of, uh, of offerings and sacrifices. And so uh, it's, then Hebrews says here, thus it is necessary for this priest. Which priest? Which priest is it referring to? The high, great high priest, Jesus. So it's necessary for him, if he's really a high priest, and priests are appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, then it's necessary for him to do the same thing. It's necessary for him to have something to offer. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Now this is a, kind of a curious little phrase in our English, I suppose, but um, it, we have to remember the statements being made about Jesus. Was he uh, in fully human flesh? Yes, he was fully human. Hebrews has, has said as much. The greater point that Hebrews is making is that he is much greater than that. Much greater than the human priest. He is fully God and fully man. And Hebrews makes much of the fully God part to make sure that we don't miss that, that he is better in every, in every measure that he can be better. A better sacrifice, a better representative of us in heaven. Um, and so we... Uh, so when verse 4 says, now if he were on earth, 
Remember, Hebrews just said, where is he? Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So then verse 4 says, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So what, what's being said here is there's a, there's a spot for earthly priests according to the old covenant, the, the old law. There's a place for that. And, and what the world needed, and this is the point of Hebrews through here, what the world needed wasn't just another Levitical priest. It, it wasn't just a priest that was a little bit better than the ones that came before. What the world needed was an entirely different priest from an entirely different type of priesthood that could sufficiently fill the task of the priest on behalf of us. That's what the world needed. And so verse 4 is making the statement that if um, it wasn't necessary for Christ to come at all if it was just to bring in another priest who was going to do the same things as all the ones before them. That wasn't needed. Because that would, had already been established. And the other part of that is Jesus was, wouldn't have even been qualified to serve in that priesthood because he wasn't uh, uh, born into the, the tribe of Levi. He was born in the tribe of Judah. So he wouldn't have even qualified to serve in that capacity. And so, and you've been and heard much about that in the last few weeks. Verse 5, they... That is the, the priests who referred to in verse 4, those earthly priests, those who were already the, had been uh, commanded in the Old Testament to offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Now, where, where at the beginning of chapter, well, very beginning of Hebrews, and again at the beginning of chapter 8, where does it say that Jesus is? At the right hand of the majesty in heaven, right? So he serves where? The very presence of God, the Father. He himself resides in heaven. So we have earthly priests, and we have a great high priest who is a heavenly high priest, and there's a difference between the two, and the difference is verse 5 The earthly priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's back in Exodus when we went and looked at that. Um, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God. Now the tent here is is the tabernacle, the place where God was going to make his presence manifestly known among his people. And, and then the priests would perform their duties in the tabernacle. It was a portable structure that could be moved. Eventually, there was a temple built that was not uh, movable. It was permanent. But before that, there was a tabernacle that could be torn down and reassembled in a new location as God led them through the desert. And so here it's being called a tent. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now we've had three terms now so far that are very similar. Verse 5, a copy, a shadow. And then here, in verse, uh, at the end of verse 5, a pattern. Um, now there are actually different, different actual um, uh, 
original, in the original language, they're different words, but they all, it's sort of like pulling out your thesaurus and finding new words to say the same thing. They're all saying, it's a type. It's an imitation. It's a likeness to. In other words, it's not the real substance of the thing. It's in likeness to it. It points to it. It imitates it, but it is not the substance of it. And so just as my brother and I would, would take tractors around the living room, it's, it's an imitation of, it's a type of, it's a likeness to, but it's not the substance of it. And so what was being the design of the tabernacle, the tent, was to imitate the stuff of heaven. And to point, and I think that's the, that term, the sh- uh, shadow, where we have copy and pattern are more like it's a type, it's an imitation of. Shadow has a little bit different implication. If something casts a shadow, what do you know? The real thing is there. Right? So, so uh, it, it, when you see a shadow, you know that the shadow is not the thing in and of itself. But the shadow is, is a sign that says the real thing is nearby. Right? And so the tabernacle, the tent, was a pattern, a type, an imitation. And so he was, Moses was instructed to build it according to what was given to him that would be an imitation of the stuff of heaven. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. All right, so now we're being um, just informed here that, that Christ, the great high priest that's being discussed here in this part of Hebrews, a high priest that's different than other priests before him, a different kind of priesthood, uh, um, that he is totally sufficient to fulfill that role of priest, whereas the others were not, um, that here we have Christ bringing now a better covenant as well. Something better between God and man than what existed before. And this, when it says that, that uh, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, it is through, the, through his sacrifice and obedience to the Father, he has revealed himself to be that sufficient sacrifice for all of us, that sufficient mediator to the Father, the one who stands before the Father and says, he's good, she's good, because they're clothed in my righteousness by faith in me. He has paid the sacrifice, paid the price for us to be forgiven. And so, the, um, so as we continue on here, there's, uh, so Christ, he's obtained uh, the ministry that is much more excellent than the old, the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, and he mediates a better, a better covenant better based on better promises. All right, so now good questions to ask here, you know, as we kind of go through this, and, and this is kind of how I do it when I'm studying the word is I ask questions. Um, I still ask a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff I still don't understand or understand fully, for sure. 
And so ask questions. That's what we do as a good detective, trying to understand God's word is ask questions. So um, what does it mean when it says that the old covenant, um, that he mediates a better, something better, that the covenant Christ mediates is better, and it's enacted on better promises? Now, a, a wrong way of looking at this would be that, that God's promises failed prior to this. But that's obviously not where this goes. It is not saying that God's promises failed back then, so Jesus is bringing some new ones that are better. And God promises this time he's going to follow through. That's not the territory we're in in this discussion, but rather we're talking about something that is, has more of the substance of the things of heaven, something that is, is, is more sufficient in terms of what the world needs, what sinners need. And so the better promises are, they're more uh, sufficient for us. They're, they're stronger. Um, they're um, more advantageous, more useful. Um, and so that, uh, now when we get below here, we're going to start answering the question of what is, what is it referring to? What are those better promises? Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Right, so if, if, if the whole priesthood system before this and all the priests were sufficient to restore people to God and to deal with the sin of, of people before God, then, then there's really no need for Jesus to come. There's no need for another priesthood. There's no need for, for Jesus. Uh, if that whole system was sufficient but it wasn't it had faults and so some of the questions that we can ask are what were the faults and how's the new covenant better so that's what this next part of the passage gets into verse 8 for he finds fault with them when he says quoting the old testament behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So what do we know up to this point about the faults of the old covenant, the insufficiencies of the old covenant? Well, we've been learning about those here, especially in chapter 8, and so the faults of the Old Covenant, here, here are some that come to light here. One, it's a copy, a shadow, a pattern of the real thing, not the real thing. It, it doesn't have the substance of the thing. It has a copy or a pattern or a likeness to it. And so it's insufficient. Secondly, the Levitical priests, those priests who were serving, they were insufficient as priests. They were corrupted by sin themselves. And they were temporary. They couldn't serve forever. And third, um, their sacrifices were insufficient. The, the blood of, of animals was insufficient to remove all the guilt from humanity. There was always more blood that had to be shed. And even then, it wasn't sufficient, sufficient to clothe us with righteousness. 
And the last thing there that was in verse 9, what happened with that covenant? People fell away. In fact, that's been one of the strong warnings throughout Hebrews, hasn't it? It's been that don't fall away, don't fall away, don't fall away like that generation during Moses' day that were faithless to God and fell away. So why then is the new covenant, let's see how the new covenant, the second covenant, the one that is introduced through Jesus Christ, is better. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So why is the new covenant better? Well, the first one was back in verse 2. Whereas the the old covenant was the copy and shadow of heavenly things, the new covenant in Christ is the substance of heavenly things. The second thing is that what is being introduced with the new covenant is transformation. It's a filling of the Spirit of God. So in other words, what, what is being transitioned is from knowing about God and trying to obey the rules as sort of a, an exterior uh, thing happening where, where, where the rules are out here and God is over there and I'm trying to satisfy the rules and, and know something about God perhaps with, with the help of some human mediators called priests. The new covenant is different. God says, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. We're talking about transformation, not rule-keeping. Where, where God's very law and the desire to, to walk in obedience to Him flows out of our heart, not out of a checklist that we're trying to, to please someone externally with. But that God changes the very hearts of His people. That he takes something dead and makes it alive. And so, though this begin, we begin to see how the new covenant and old covenant are different because we're not talking about taking, uh, in point uh, three there, we're talking about God taking spiritually dead people and making them alive in Christ, waking the dead through the blood of Christ. And now those people who are alive, they're not just polished up versions of their old self, they are new creations who are equipped now to serve a holy and righteous God from a place of righteousness, not a place of sinfulness, not a place of corruption. Not that our sin Not that our desire for sin has been totally removed, but that the substance of sin, that is, that as we stand before God, 
We stand now in Christ, not as sinner, but as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, acceptable to our holy and righteous God. As we keep going there, then he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now we begin, and it will go further here, but we begin to now understand that God is talking not about being known from afar. You know, that remember the people of, of, of Israel gathering at the base of the mountain while Moses goes up there to meet with God. And so there's this way in which they kind of know God from a distance. They know about him. They can see that he's present. They see the shadow of the tree. They just can't see the tree. Where God begins to use language here where now he's talking about a personal intimacy with those who belong to him. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God is known as Father, as shepherd of our souls. And we are known as his children. Adopted into his family through faith in Christ. A belonging to God. The next thing we see as we continue on there, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother. Now this is obviously not saying, because the New Testament says that God actually gives teachers to the body of Christ. And the New Testament encourages believers to teach one another. So there's something else going on here. So he's not saying that it's wrong to teach. What is is being said then? He says, for they shall all know me. All right, so think about it this way. Uh, Jenny and I have children. It would be really weird for me to go to my children and try to tell them who Jenny is, who mom is. Right? Why? Because they know her. Right? I don't need to instruct them about who she is because they experientially have relationship with her and know her. And that's what's being uh, pointed at here is that the people will know God in a way where it's not going to be necessary anymore for me to tell you about God because you will know him for yourself. That God. God has made a way for him to be known personally and intimately through Christ. By whom? Ah, glad you asked that question. That's a great question. That's a very Bible student question of you to ask. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So everyone may know God in such a way. So it's not dependent, uh, not being dependent then on you just to tell me about God, but that there is a way made through Christ where I may know him personally and intimately. And that way is available to everyone who calls on the name of Christ by faith. And then in verse 12, And I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This points to a permanence of forgiveness and righteousness. Now, at the beginning of chapter 8, it sets out by telling us that Christ, 
is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And we talked a little bit about the significance of that. Hebrews actually starts out with that. In chapter 1, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you remember our previous discussions through Hebrews here about the priesthood and their role and how Christ is a better priest, it is this, that one, Christ is a better sacrifice. His sacrifice was sufficient, so much so that it didn't have to be repeated like all the other sacrifices before. It was sufficient to forgive the sins of everyone. That one sacrifice. And because the the sacrifice of himself was sufficient, also his duties as a priest became sufficient. So that there was no longer sacrifice he needed to make and his job was essentially done in that regards. In terms of performing sacrifices... And so he gets to sit down, something else, something that the previous priests couldn't do. They were on call all the time, so to speak, because the job was just never done. And so Christ, through him, we have real forgiveness. Not a covering of sin, but the removal of it. The removal of the guilt. The removal of the shame the removal of the sin, and an obtaining through him of righteousness. And that righteousness comes not by you and I working harder at it, but rather through faith in Christ. Which is also another point that Hebrews is going to make, that that righteousness that we need before God comes by faith. Not by doing more stuff, working harder at it, being more religious, being more devout, um, what, whatever it is. But rather, by trusting in Him. You know, Paul wrote to the, the Galatians because they wrestled with this very thing. They had heard the gospel. They had believed the gospel. The gospel that says that God has reached from heaven to earth through His Son, sent His Son to take you and me, take our place on on the cross, that place that we justly deserve to be, to receive His punishment. And He sent His Son to take that place for humanity. Whereby Christ was the only one who could sufficiently pay the price uh, of God's wrath against our sin. And he was sufficient to do that for everyone. And so God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die in our place so that those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the Galatians believed that. They believed that. And what what, what they had been doing previously is trying to earn salvation. Working really hard to obtain it. Now, we're all called to work towards being Christ-like, becoming more like Him. But we are not going to earn God's favor or salvation by working harder. And when the Galatians heard that, they turned to Christ by faith and received the gift of God of 
forgiveness and salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But old habits die hard, right? And the Galatians began to drift back towards a way of, of rather than walking in obedience and living out of an overflowing heart and walking in the Spirit, that they began to live out of a system of do's and don'ts and checklists and religious rule. And so Paul writes to them in chapter 3, and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, what's going on? Who's bewitched you? Is the, the term he uses at the beginning of chapter 3. And he said, Did you receive the Spirit of, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so he's providing some correction for the, the, the Galatians here to, to bring them back to what it was that brought them into fellowship with God and brought them to forgiveness and life in the Spirit. And so as we go down towards the end of chapter 3 then, he says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. This is the old covenant. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the old covenant was a shadow of the thing that was coming. The old covenant, if you could follow that shadow to its, to its source, would lead you to the new covenant whereby Jesus Christ stands as the mediator of that covenant. And so Paul's reminding them of that, that the old covenant was not one to lead you to salvation in and of itself, but rather to lead you to the one whereby salvation can be found, and that's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So so the the law was there, the old covenant was there to, to, to prepare you for the substance of heaven that was about to come upon us in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who gave his life for all. And as Paul points to the Galatians, he says, so this is where you have to stand, is on that greater promise, that better promise, that it is not the law that saves you, it is not your religion that saves you, but it is the Son of God who saves you. And the scripture makes the point, and uh, I was reminded this of, uh, by one of my kids this, uh, over the Thanksgiving season and conversation, that, that if if everyone lived to the glory of God, there would be no need for law. Think about that. Law is to give boundaries to our sinful and selfish inclinations. But the heart of a heart that is inclined towards God draws us near to being Christ-like, where we live by the two greatest commands, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. Jesus says against those things, there's no law against that, right? The law, the law of God within us leads us to fulfill those things. But the law in and of itself will not save us. 
And as believers, as we think about growing in Christ's likeness, that growing in Christ's likeness also is coming from an overflow of a heart that is in relationship with God, not a heart that's trying to paddle as fast as we can to to and as hard as we can to just cross off the 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 checklist of this is what a good Christian does. We will always fall short by that measure. That will always be a condemning list in our life. If we keep a list that says you're a good Christian because you do X, Y, Z, it will always serve to condemn us. It is what the old law did. It, it was largely, it, it, it laid out a path for this is the way to be blessed with God and it pointed out how you fail. But Christ has given his life for us that we should walk by faith in him. And so it is with coming to Christ as well. Once in a while, we'll, I, I will hear something to the effect of, you know, that, that suggests that someone is not yet worthy to step into a relationship with God. Well, if that were the case, that only those who were worthy could step into relationship with God and receive his forgiveness, then none of us would ever be worthy. But the true fact is that Hebrews says that it is available to everyone. You remember, there was a guy hanging on a cross next to Jesus. There were two, actually. One who up to the moment of his death, at least as far as we can see from scriptures, just had nothing but uh, hatred for Christ. And the other one who said he was justly hanging there. I mean, he, he himself said it's just for him to be hanging on that cross because he was a thief and a sinner. He recognized that in and of himself, yet he called to Christ and Christ ushered him into the kingdom of God that day. So if we're going to have a discussion about who is worthy, then none of us are worthy. If we're going to have a discussion about who can come into the kingdom of God, then we're all included in that. And that includes you, wherever you're at right now. That your heart may have been resistant or perhaps you have felt like, well, I'm not worthy to be called a child of God. I look at my life and I look at the stuff going on in my heart and in my relationships and I'm, I couldn't be called a Christian. Well, a Christian is not someone who measures up to some standard of the world. A Christian is one who belongs to Christ as, as the son of God by faith in him. And by that measure, that can be any of us. But the Bible says we must call out to him for that. To receive Christ by faith. And for believers, a good reminder for us to walk in that then. To never veer from that. As if somehow now our relationship with God depends on how good of a job we do. But rather to devote ourselves continually to him to trust in him, to seek to be like him out of an overflow of love for him. For Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Not if you're a good Christian, you'll obey my commands. It is out of love that we walk in obedience to him. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that that what you have done for us, uh, Lord, is sufficient to give us a hope that we can hang on to that will not disappoint because you do not disappoint. You are faithful completely and perfectly. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Thank you for sending your Son to take our place on the cross, to suffer your wrath on our behalf. Thank you for reaching from heaven to earth to bring us into your family. That we would be called children of God by the work that you have done. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. Lord, that we don't walk um, as those being abandoned by you and separated from you, but as those belonging to you and knowing you. Because your presence dwells with us and in us. Lord, I just pray for those who perhaps today would step into faith in you who would invite you to be Lord of their life, to be their Savior and receive your forgiveness, to receive your Spirit today, that, Lord, you would, um, that you would give them courage in taking that step and that you would fill them with your joy and your peace as they relinquish the control of their life to you and trust you who, is, who has proven himself faithful time and again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul goes on in, in Galatians, and uh, curiously enough, to these people who were wrestling with going back to a, a religion of doing the right thing and don't doing the wrong thing, um, he says in chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, of religious law and such. And he goes on to say then, um, probably a passage that many of you will remember. Um, he says, if you, if you want to avoid gratifying the nature of that sin, those sinful desires within you, walk in the Spirit. By faith in Christ in the Spirit of God. Not by keeping your list handy, but rather by pointing your eyes towards Christ and following Him. And he goes on then to say even further, so it's not just avoiding falling into that temptation of sin, but then do you want to be like Christ? And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So life in the Spirit is what we're called to, and life in the Spirit is what we have been enabled to do through Christ in the new covenant. And that's available to everyone who calls out to Him. Lord, bless and keep you. Walk by faith.